Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all our hearts be found always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Dear people of God, one of the questions that I've learned to hate at this time of year is, so what do you hope to get for Christmas? I suppose it's rooted in my childhood experiences of hoping for ponies and puppies, big wheels and bicycles, and always getting the very practical gifts of socks and underwear. By my account, this was the middle-class equivalent of coal in my stocking. But at least I had the stockings, lots of them. The question is innocent enough. What do you hope for? One of the ways we get to know people is by learning their hopes and dreams. Adults learn to deflect the question by saying noble things like, I want peace on earth, goodwill toward mankind. At least children are honest enough to say what they mean. I want stuff, lots of stuff. If, if Christmas is about the fulfillment of our hopes, as the commercials keep telling us, then this might in fact be the most honest answer of all. This is what we hope for, stuff. Even the pious sentiment, let's put Christ back into Christmas, might just be a cover-up for our selfishness. After all, what do we think religion is for? except for the fulfillment of our hopes. Will Willimon writes, We hope to find peace in our ancient lives, so we come to church Sunday morning, hoping the music of the hymns, the words of scripture and preaching, might fill us with a sense of peace. Or maybe we hope for beauty. There's so much ugliness in the world. Sunday, therefore, becomes a haven, an island of beauty amidst a great deal of unloveliness. Church, is where you get your hopes met, where our yearnings are fulfilled. I dare say it's the major reason why people keep coming to church. Though their hopes are often disappointed by what we do here on Sunday, there are enough Sundays when you're able to emerge from the service saying, why that service really did something for me. What you're saying is that the service fulfilled some of your expectations for what good worship ought to be. Your hopes were met. But maybe the whole thing, Christmas, church, religion, is simply a mask for the selfish goal of getting our personal hopes and dreams fulfilled. Last week I was laid flat by some sort of nasty bug. I won't, I'll spare you the details. It wasn't all bad. It afforded me time to catch up on some much-needed TV watching. Dozens of episodes of Hogan's Heroes, unseen histories, mysteries about UFOs, Sasquatch, and Chupacabras. Most importantly, to watch C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe for the 14th time. Sure, I could have read it, but it was on TV. What stood out in this particular viewing was the theme of hope for the Pevensey children. Having entered the realm of Narnia through the wardrobe, Narnia now under the rule of the evil white witch who made it always winter and never Christmas, the children began to see signs of change, signs that her evil reign was about to come to an end.
the slow melting of snow and ice, the budding of trees and plants, and most dramatically, the arrival of Father Christmas, Santa Claus to you and me. It's the arrival of Father Christmas that keeps the children hopeful, keeps them moving forward in their pilgrimage to finally meet Aslan, the Christ figure. And so we come during this same season, anticipating Christmas in the cold, dark winter of our lives. And what do we get as a sign of hope to keep us moving forward? No Father Christmas, decked in red, carrying a bag full of goodies, shouting a Merry Christmas to all. What we get is John the Baptist, week after week, dressed like a homeless person, eating bugs and screaming that the end of the world is about to come. The religious leaders of his day are curious as well. They're also waiting for someone to bring them hope. And they line up to ask him, who are you? Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No again. I am just a voice. God's megaphone to make you ready. I have to say that John the Baptist is always a disappointment to me. An odd diversion before we get to the manger. We're always more ready to get to the shepherds and the angels singing Gloria in Excelsis Deo. And yet we're stopped in our tracks by this throwback prophet with, a, with bad fashion sense. We want to say to John, okay, we're ready already. And the voice echoes back to us across the Jordan. That's what you think. Today's reading from the epistle of 1 Thessalonians gives us a wonderful Advent word of hope. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of the prophet. What's there to despise when you have words like those in Isaiah 20, uh, 64? The year of the Lord's favor. Comfort for the morning. Binding up the brokenhearted. Liberty for captives and on and on. This is the hope we're all waiting for. Isn't it? But John the Baptist stands as a reminder that we're not quite as ready for this as we might think. What both Isaiah and John the Baptizer prophesy is, the, is a world that comes with the Messiah. A new age of peace in which all injustice comes to an end in a great reversal of fortunes for the poor and oppressed and for the greedy and powerful. It harkens back to the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, now connected completely with Jesus. But before we can get to that day, before we're ready, we're told that our hopes need to be renovated. Before John the Baptist was born, his father Zechariah, the priest, was filled with personal hopes and dreams. If somebody asked him, what do you hope for? His answer would have been simple, a son. He and his wife Elizabeth 
had spent a lifetime in faithful service to God. The gospel says both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. This stands as one of the highest compliments to any human being in the Bible. But Elizabeth and Zechariah have a not-so-secret shame. No firstborn son to pass on the family name and vocation. And if you read the Bible closely, you see that bearing children is seen as a gift from God, a kind of immortality by which you pass on the covenants, the values, the traditions of God's people from the next generation to the next. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, both being descendants of the priestly tribe of Aaron, have quite a heritage to pass on, but no child. A child, quite simply, meant that there was a future for Israel. This tiny nation besieged century after century by more powerful countries than they, endlessly trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. If God was going to keep his promises to Israel, he would have to give them children. This was the hope. But now in their senior years, well past childbearing years, Elizabeth and Zechariah carry the sorrow and shame of no progeny. Surely people talked behind their backs. If this priestly couple were as pious and faithful as they seemed, then God surely would have blessed them with a child. There must be some secret sin, some unknown infidelity, Elizabeth and Zechariah surely saw the glances, heard the whispers, and that would only add to their pain. But then as the story goes on, Zechariah is serving in the temple one day, and he's chosen by a casting of lots to be the one priest this day who would enter the sanctuary and offer a sacrifice of incense. This is a chance of a lifetime for a priest, given the number of priests that are serving in the temple. And while inside the sanctuary, Zechariah encounters an angel of the Lord. Do not be afraid. That's how you know you're dealing with an angel. Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. Zechariah's response is stunned disbelief. How is this possible? My wife is no spring chicken. But the angel is in no mood for quibbling. And Zechariah is instantly struck dumb for daring to mention his wife's age. When he exits this holy place, he is unable to speak. He's unable to pronounce the priestly benediction. And everyone concludes that he must have had a vision. So Zechariah returns home to his wife Elizabeth in the Judean country. And now, without being able to say anything stupid, they start acting like newlyweds. And Mrs. becomes pregnant. You can imagine that Elizabeth must have glowed for months. And Zechariah took her out in public all the more just to show the young men what he was capable of. And then the child was born. 
the day came for the naming of the boy. And everyone fully expected that Zechariah would name his firstborn after himself, according to custom. After all, he had waited a lifetime for an heir. It wasn't likely another was coming. This would be someone to step into his sandals in the ministry, to carry on his name in Israel. Yet when the time came for the naming, both mother and father insisted, his name will be John. No argument. And as soon as Zechariah writes out these words, his speech is returned. The Spirit comes upon him and he begins to praise God, causing fear and wonder among the people. After this nine-month delay, Zechariah is finally able to pronounce his benediction. But his first words aren't, God has answered my prayer, it's a boy, pass out the cigars, finally I have an heir. His words come in the form of one of the most hopeful prayers of all scripture, a prayer that has been prayed by the church ever since. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has come to his people and set them free. He has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of the house of his servant David. Through his holy prophets, he promised of old that he would save us from our enemies, from the hands of all who despise us. He promised to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. This was the oath God swore to our father Abraham to set us free from the hands of, of our enemies, free to worship without fear, holy and righteous in his sight all the days of our life. And you, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Something remarkable has happened in the course of nine months. Not simply the birth of this child to this elderly couple, but notice the direction of Zechariah's prayer how his benediction moves beyond the hopes of Zechariah and Elizabeth to the hope of Israel and the hope of the world. Their prayer has not only been answered, their prayer has been enlarged. Their hope has been stretched beyond their personal desire for a child to a global desire for justice and peace. That's what the Spirit of God does. But this answer to prayer, this enlargement of hope, comes at a price, a personal price. Zechariah and Elizabeth have to sacrifice the hopes for their son, for the hopes of the world. This child would be the prophet of the Most High God, not fulfilling the longings of his parents 
not fulfilling the expectation that someone would take up the family calling, would serve as a priest in the temple, in the footsteps of father, to carry on the respectable family name by sacrificing their son, by naming him John. They've given him over to God to become an outcast, a religious fanatic living on the fringe of society, playing second fiddle to the Messiah and ultimately sharing the Messiah's fate. In order to have their hopes fulfilled, this couple has to have their hopes enlarged and they have to sacrifice their child to the will of God, letting him get caught up in the cross-shaped world of the Savior. John doesn't belong to them. He belongs to Israel. He belongs to the world. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has come to his people and has set them free. The promise of salvation, the hope for a time of jubilee, is the pledge not merely of having our personal ideals fulfilled, but the promise of God's justice intruding on the world and turning everything topsy-turvy, even us, or perhaps especially us. If we are to be a people who make straight the way of the Lord, then we are to be living out God's righteousness today, here and now participating in the salvation that is our hope. But to be a part of this good news, we need to have our hopes expanded beyond ourselves to include everything that God loves. This Advent, perhaps what we need to hope for more than anything is grace. The grace to desire what God desires. The grace to sacrifice our hope to his hope. As Flannery O'Connor once wrote to a friend, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and change is painful. Do not despise the words of the prophet. For many people, one of the great joys of this season is the opportunity to attend a performance of Handel's Messiah. What many people don't know is that when George Friedrich Handel composed this particular piece, his career was in ruins. He was swimming in personal debt and unable to pay his own bills. He could have easily turned attention to writing something that would rescue his livelihood, resolve his own financial mess. But instead, he accepted this offer to write a piece for a benefit concert for a local debtor's prison. He wrote the score of the Messiah in 24 days, and at its debut performance in Dublin in 1742, Handel's Messiah raised over 400 pounds and freed 142 men from their debts. For the rest of his life, Handel continued to conduct his Messiah in prisons and hospitals to raise money for orphanages and for the mentally ill. The proceeds from this piece of music always went to charity. 
One contemporary newspaper described Handel's contribution in this way. The Messiah fed the hungry. It clothed the naked. It fostered the orphan. It gave hope to the hopeless. The lesson of Advent for us is that the coming of the Messiah is not simply for our salvation, not simply for the fulfillment of my hopes and dreams. It's about the enlargement of our hopes and dreams to include God's deep love of justice for his whole world. The prophets speak of the gracious promise of God breaking into the human system of of oppression and poverty and enslavement by the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist reminds us that we're not quite there yet, that we yet have to turn away from our commitments to these systems and embrace the righteousness of the coming kingdom. Then we will be ready when Jubilee arrives. But Jesus, who has come and is coming, is the one in whom the hopes and fears of the whole world are finally met. And as we are being made ready for that final day, we need to be prepared to have our hopes enlarged, our dreams transformed by the gospel. We need the intervention of the Holy Spirit so that we can proclaim and live this good news for the oppressed, bind up the brokenhearted, embody grace and forgiveness for all captives of human evil. This year when people ask, what do you hope for this Christmas? An honest answer might be a flat screen TV or a new Blackberry. A nice, pious answer is, I want peace on earth. But a better answer is, I want the grace to be part of God's peace on earth until Jesus finally comes. For then in the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death and will guide our feet into the way of peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.